Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, please do take it out, open it up along with me uh, to Luke's Gospel and to chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we're headed this morning. So Luke chapter 2, a familiar passage to us at Christmas time, uh, words that we will recognize, but we come towards them today with fresh eyes. So Luke chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 1 and reading through to verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the angels told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, please do open your Bible up with me again to Luke chapter 2 as we come to consider these words together. And just as you're doing that, allow me to pray with you once more. Father, as we turn now to your word and consider the great joy that has come to the world, we ask that you would still our hearts and take all distractions from our minds. May your Holy Spirit so move and work among us now that we would be like good soil readied for the seed. Grant each of us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive your word, so that it would be planted deep within us, and by the Holy Spirit's power, grow and bring forth fruits of righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, what marks the beginning of Christmas? What is it that marks the beginning of Christmas for you? Is it whenever you see in the shop window the, the Christmas decorations going up? 
Personally, I think that's a bit premature. No sooner do they have the, the Halloween decorations down and everything's filled with Christmas lights. Maybe it's when you're out in the car and you have the radio on and you hear the first bit of Christmas music and that really puts you in the mood. You think it's that time of year. Well, for me, what really marks the beginning of Christmas is whenever you sing the first carol in church. Typically, the first Sunday in December, some may be sooner, some may be later, but I think when you come to church and you sing a carol, whatever that may be, that really marks the beginning of Christmas time. And of course, we all have our favorite carols. Presently, mine is Hark the Herald, and that's subject to change, but we all have our, our favorite carols. I wonder what's going through your head even at the minute. What comes to mind? Some old familiar carol, maybe something more modern? And as you think over those words, what exactly are they saying? Lots of different carols, but very often the themes, the language being used is the same in them. And one word that occurs time and again, we've just been singing about it, is joy. That carols are filled with joy. But what exactly is that joy of which we sing? What are we talking about there? You know, all the way back in the, in the 4th or 5th century, St. Augustine was asked, what is time? And he said, well, I thought I knew what time was until someone asked me to describe it. Maybe we feel that way about joy. We have in our minds an idea of what joy is. We know what joy is. We can see it in other people. We can recognize it when we see it. We know it's something that we want for ourselves, but actually when we have to put joy into words, that can be a trickier thing to do. We know it's, it's more than just happiness. Happiness is really based on your circumstances, you know, that can peak and that can plummet. It's more than just being cheerful. It's deeper, it's richer than that. But what exactly is joy? What is this joy that we are seeking? Everyone's seeking for joy. Christmas is, is the season of joy. Everyone's looking for it now. But if we think of another of those carols, it's really one we sort of based our whole Christmas theme around, O Holy Night. You have that line, that wonderful line, the weary world rejoices. And of course, it is a weary world, isn't it? There are weary people. We are weary people. We're tired. We're exhausted. We're, we're burnt out. And so much of that comes from our, our vain pursuit of joy, of trying to find joy in this life, but something that always seems to just escape through our fingers when we think we've grasped it. And yet, a weary world rejoices. So what is this joy in the weary world? How is it that a weary world can rejoice? Well, as we come to consider that this morning, we want to think about three things that will really aid our study here. First, we want to see how God works great joy in a weary world. It is God who works great joy in the weary world. Secondly, great joy is good news for a weary world. It, great joy is good news for the weary world. And finally, we want to see how God's people can rejoice in the weary world. That God's people can rejoice, should rejoice, and will rejoice in the weary world. We begin our study by thinking about how God is working great joy in the weary world. So as we turn towards these opening verses of Luke 2, and if we look there at the first couple of verses, what we see is some strange names. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, the governor of Syria, and well, they're having a, a, a census, essentially. And what's all this about? Well, if we flick back a few pages to the very opening verses of Luke's gospel, Luke tells us what he's doing. He's giving us an orderly account. 
He's met with the eyewitnesses. He's gathered the testimony. He's telling us the truth about these events. And so when we read the names of Caesar or Quirinius, what we see here is real people, real history, real events. The story that is to follow is supernatural. And yet it is no fairy tale for it is grounded in the truth of history. Why? Well, because we have a God who works in and through history. And he does that to bring great joy. You see, if great joy were to be founded on a fiction, well, it would be no use to us at all, for it would soon evaporate. It wouldn't take the weight. But God is giving us great joy that is set in something solid, set in concrete, the truth of history, not something from our imaginations, not an imagined joy, but a real joy that is to come to us for a God who works in history. So how is he working? Well, he's working through men like Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, really the sort of first proper emperor of the Roman Empire, the most powerful man in all the world. And here he is having a census. Now, whether this is to tax people, whether this is just to count the heads of the empire to sort of flex his muscles a bit, whatever it might be, we know that working behind Caesar's decree is God's eternal decree to save, a decree that will bring great joy. Yes, God sovereignly works through Caesar Augustus to bring it about that Joseph should go to Bethlehem. Why should Joseph go to Bethlehem? Well, verse 4 tells us that he is of the house and lineage of David. David, of course, being Israel's greatest king. Well, why is Joseph, this young carpenter, to head off with Mary, his betrothed and heavily pregnant Mary at that, to this little town of Bethlehem? Why is he to head away down south? Well, because that little town of Bethlehem we know to be a great and significant town. It was long foretold by the prophets and the prophet Micah in chapter 5 and verse 2 of his little book, verses that we are familiar with at Christmas. But you, O Bethlehem of Rapha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so what we see is God had spoke through the prophets that a ruler was to come from that little town of Bethlehem, a ruler far greater than King David, far greater than Caesar in Rome, a ruler who was to come and bring great joy. And so whether it was through the ancient prophets like Micah, through the pagan politicians like Caesar, or through ordinary people, Mary and Joseph, and ordinary places like little Bethlehem, God is working through history, sovereignly working, even behind the scenes, and doing it to bring great joy into a weary world. I told you my favorite carol was Hark the Herald. Well, there's the wonderful line there in that Charles Wesley hymn. Late in time, behold him come. Late in time, behold him come. What's that to say? Was Jesus born late? No, not that at all. But how all creation... All the world, since it fell into sin, was longing for this saviour that God had promised. It's what Abraham and Moses and David and all the great saints of old longed to see. But they didn't see it in their lifetime. To them it was late. But Christ came into this world exactly when God intended. Exactly at the right moment in history. Exactly as the prophet Micah had foretold. Exactly as... Caesar Augustus tried to order his empire exactly as Mary and Joseph traveled down to Bethlehem because this is God's salvation plan entering into its next step. 
a plan that will bring great joy into the world, a real joy. And that's what we see then in verse 7, if we look at it there. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. It happens exactly as God intended. And that this mother's joy is to become joy to the whole world. The next step of God's salvation plan. And every little detail is so carefully worked by him. Every little detail held within his hands. Now we know Christmas is full of little details, isn't it? And the mad rush of trying to get everything sorted and organized. And you've got all these presents to buy and you've got to wrap them. And once you've wrapped them, you need to remember who actually is getting what, and you have to hide them because nosy people go poking around your house and checking under your bed, and you know you have to be very careful about these things. And then you're going to have a big dinner for people, and you're going to be catering for 15, and you've only got a table that seats six, and you've got to figure out all the food and all these little details that you're scrambling to try and sort out, all the little details that sometimes are just totally beyond our control. But we have a God who works through the little details. A God who works through the very ordinary details of life. And even it may be that 2023 has not been the, the joyous year you hope for. Maybe it has been a very weary year. And you just wish you could skip past Christmas. You just wish you'd get into the new year and start afresh. Because you had all these plans and all these endeavors and none, nothing really came from it. It just felt like a year where you had no control over anything that was happening. And we make our plans... We have all our little details. So often our plans fail, but God's never do. Because God works even behind the scenes to bring great joy to the weary world. God works through very ordinary people and ordinary places to bring extraordinary joy to the weary world. And God works through real people and real events in real history to bring great joy to the weary world. And so we can say, secondly then, that God's great joy is good news for the weary world. It is good news for the weary world. And we're going to see that if we cast our eyes there to verse 8. And we look at these shepherds out in the same region, just outside of Bethlehem essentially. There they are, keeping watch over their flocks by night. So the same region, well, Bethlehem, we say, is famous for its shepherds. We've already mentioned King David, but before he was ever a king, he was that shepherd boy out in the fields of Bethlehem. And I have a, a, a slight gripe with David over this. Because whenever we think about David as the shepherd, we think of him as this young man sitting out in the fields, a little lamb spread across his lap. It's a very cute, cuddly picture. And yet David told, told about having to wrestle with lions and bears and, well, being a shepherd didn't actually sound that great when you think about it like that. He wrote Psalm 23, and, well, we take great comfort in those words. We love to picture green pastures and, and still waters, and all that's very true, but certainly there was another side to shepherding. To being a shepherd was to live a weary life in a weary world. It was to be out in the fields exposed to the elements, it was to be away from home for a long time, looking after someone else's sheep in all likelihood, probably not even your own. And as you were away from home so often, you were sort of cut off from the religious life of the people, not able to get to the temple, to the synagogue, to participate in the religious feasts. Shepherds were seen as very <clears throat> untrustworthy, unreliable people. 
They couldn't give testimony in a court of law because very often sheep belonging to one flock somehow made their way into someone else's flock. Yes, it was to be a, a weary person, a weary life, a weary job in a very weary world. And yet it is to these weary shepherds that the night sky lights up as a way it never had before, as the angel comes to them there, as we see in verse 9. And the angel of the Lord. Now, of course, in the Christmas story, it's full of angels. Angels carrying messages from God to people. Very significant, very important news. And in the Greek, the word angel really can also be translated as messenger, because that's what the angels are. They're God's messengers here. And they come, well, this angel comes with a very specific message. And what do we see? Well, the sky lights up. Why? Because verse 9 tells us as we see it there, the glory of the Lord shone around them and they're filled with great fear. It's the glory of the Lord that lit up the sky, not the glory of the angel. The angel has no glory of his own, but the glory of the Lord, that God was present there, that this angel comes with divine authority, a message from God himself for these shepherds. And the response of the shepherds is that they're filled with great fear, as you would be, as was the common reaction when God's glory is shown in the Bible. It's something that brings people to their knees. And yet what does this angel say to them? Fear not, there in verse 10, you see it, fear not. Very reassuring words, isn't it? Fear not. If you're afraid and someone tells you don't be afraid, that'll just fix it, just like that, won't it? If you're sad and someone tells you to cheer up, that's the problem solved. No. You need to give them a reason. A reason not to fear. And the angel has just such a reason for them. The commentator Daryl Buck on this verse writes these wonderful words. He says, Humanity has nothing to fear when God moves in grace. That humanity has nothing to fear when God moves in grace. And that's exactly what we see happening here. God is moving in grace. His glory is shining. The angel has come. And he's come with a message that they should not fear. Why? Because he has good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It's good news of great joy. And it's not just for them, it's for all the people. It's not just for the lowly shepherds. It's for the Jews of Bethlehem. It's for the Gentiles of the world. It's for the rich and poor. It's for men and women. It's for the old and the young. It's good news now, we look out in the world and we say people aren't filled with great joy. This is a world that's hungry for joy. People are waiting for that joy, seeking and searching for joy. The angel tells us where that joy is to be found. That joy is to be found in verse 11. In the child that has been born in the city of David, a saviour who is Christ the Lord. Good news that the child has been born. And again, if we go to the Greek, the word good news, that's where we get the word gospel. That's the same thing. The gospel means good news. The gospel is good news for us. Well, you know, the Roman Empire had its own good news, had its own gospel. Whenever a, a new Roman emperor came to the throne, he would send out his heralds, much like angels, as messengers to proclaim the good news. Somebody new was seated on the throne. If the Roman emperor had a child, a son who was to follow him and take that throne, Again, he would send out his messengers to herald and proclaim good news to the people of Rome. What sort of good news is that? What difference does that good news really make to anyone? 
Does that bring great joy, maybe to the emperor in Rome? Probably not to the people. And if we think even of our own time, we can think back to the birth of probably Prince George is the most recent and the, uh, important and significant one for us. We think of William and Kate, and maybe you love them, maybe not so much. I'm a fan, personally. Kate in particular, I think she could walk in snow and not leave footprints. She's that graceful. <laughs> but you look at that, George and, and Charlotte and Louis, and you, you see them in the newspaper, and they're all dressed lovely and very, very cute. But I don't remember the day or hour they were born. I don't remember where I was or what I was doing when I heard that good news. And no doubt the family were delighted. But truth be told, it doesn't have a great impact on how I live my life day to day. It's good news, but does it bring great joy for all the world? Probably not. But here we have a different child. A child, as the angels tell us, that is good news of great joy for all the people. Why? Well, it's found in the very titles. He is a saviour who is Christ the Lord. A saviour, of course, in Matthew's gospel, in the, the Christmas account there, we read the angel tells Joseph, you'll call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin. For the very name Jesus means the Lord saves. And so he is a saviour. He is Christ. And there's not a name but a title. It really means anointed one. It goes back to the Old Testament. And the idea that kings would be anointed. Oil would be poured over them. They were set apart by God. And here we have the greatest king, a king far greater than David, anointed, set apart for this great work. And he is the Lord, for God himself has come. And this is the great joy that has come to the world. Great joy, not something that we need to manufacture or try and conjure up within ourselves, but great joy that's actually something external, something that comes to us, not something that's from us, but something that's to us. Something that can be in us, but really not from us. It's from God. Great joy is his gift. And that gift is a person, is a king, is a baby in Bethlehem. It is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so with this proclamation of the good news, that one angel is joined by a multitude of the heavenly host. An angelic choir fills the sky and proclaims glory to God in the highest. And I suppose now also in the lowest, in that little manger in Bethlehem. But that's not where their song ends. If we look there at verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now peace is something so intimately tied to the birth of Christ. Again, if we go back to the, the prophets of the Old Testament and a familiar Christmas reading that we find in Isaiah 9, and there Jesus is given four titles, four titles for this child who will be born. And the one that springs to mind is Prince of Peace. And he will be called the Prince of Peace. And Isaiah goes on to say that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now Jesus was actually born in a time in history called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The longest period of unbroken peace the Roman Empire ever had. It had its little skirmishes here or there, but there were no big or new wars to be fought. And yet the Pax Romana did not last. It came to an end. The Roman government did not last. That came to an end. But with the increase of Christ's government and of peace, there will be no end. And it is this peace, this peace of Christ, that is to be the very foundation for our joy. And what is that peace? Well, it's not silent night. It's not a white Christmas. 
But it is this, peace between God and man. It is an end to the curse of sin, an end to the rebellion of sin, that God and man should be reconciled through this king born in Bethlehem. And that the great joy God has given is built upon the foundation of this very peace. You maybe see that if you watch any of those old war documentaries or even a movie when, when the war ends, the celebrations, the joy that is in that moment. It comes in this, in the end of the conflict. And yet, what does verse 14 tell us? That this peace is among those with whom he is pleased or well pleased. The problem for us there is that our sin, we know we cannot please God in our sin. And some people strive to try and do that. They put all their effort into doing that. They'll try and tick every wee box they can and make themselves extremely religious people. Work as hard as they can. Do all the good they can and the thought and the effort that they might please God. And yet try and strive as they might. They're no further on than when they started. And others, knowing that they cannot please God, filled with great fear, try to flee from him, try to run from God to get as far from him as they can. And for all their effort, they're no further from when they started. Whether we flee or whether we strive, we do so in vain and joy escapes us. But Jesus is called Savior because we cannot save ourselves. And so I love the way that the NIV actually puts Verse 14, if you have an NIV, you'll enjoy this. Those on whom his favor rests. That peace is for those on whom God's favor rests. Reminds us that it's all of grace. And not about our striving. Not about the things we in vain try for. But all of the grace of God. That we might live in his favor. That we might rest in Jesus Christ and receive his great joy. And so whether we're weary from trying to run from him or weary from trying to, to strive to reach him, what we see here is that God's favor is for those who would simply rest in him. And that is good news of great joy, that God has sent a savior. Jesus Christ has come. And so we can see then how God's people can indeed rejoice in a weary world. And that's the final thing we want to think about here briefly this morning. God's people can rejoice in a weary world because that Savior has come. In verse 15, we see there that the shepherds are of one mind. They're unanimous. They say, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They're going to go and they're going to find this Savior. They long to see him. No doubt in their mind, they must go. And you can imagine them running in from the fields, hurrying about the streets of Bethlehem, knocking on doors, asking, have you heard of a child? Have you seen a child being born? Searching for that child. Of course, the angel gave them a sign. If you look there in verse 12, you'll see that. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The angel gave them a sign, but very interestingly, the angel didn't actually tell them to go, didn't give them the command to go and search for the child simply told them how to find the child, knowing that they would go, because of course they'll go. Because when you have the opportunity to see the Savior, would you not run to meet him? When that great joy is held before you, would you not try to grasp it with both hands? Why would you just let that pass you by? No, the shepherds go. In fact, they rush to see him. Verse 16 says they go with haste. There's an urgency here. They long to meet that Savior. 
They long to have that joy fulfilled in him. And so they go. And they find the child exactly as the angel had said. The angels write about where to find him, how to find him. But is the angel also write about who this child is? A saviour who is Christ the Lord? Absolutely. It's just a wee reminder there that God's word always proves true, doesn't it? Well, we see something very interesting in verses 17 and 18. If you have a look at those, and what we see is that the angels were the first to hear the good news. And now they themselves become messengers of good news. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. All who heard it wondered. These shepherds are telling everyone they see about what has just happened to them. And what has happened to them is really quite unbelievable, isn't it? We were out in the field as any other night. And the sky lit up with the glory of God shining around us. And an angel came to us and and told us of a child who had been born. A most wonderful child. And then the sky was filled with angels singing glory to God. It's a far-fetched story. But as we said at the beginning, our joy, if it is founded on a fiction, is no joy at all. That's something grounded in the real events of history. The people wondered at what the shepherds told them. They didn't just dismiss this miraculous story out of hand. We're not told whether or not they actually believed the shepherds, but they wondered. They couldn't dismiss it. There's something gripping about their story, something captivating about it. And could it be the very joy of the shepherds? The very joy that had filled their hearts that was now overflowing into their speech, into their conversations with everyone they met. A joy that was so real, so undeniable within them. You know, we see something really quite wonderful uh, in the Gospels. Sort of a parallel at the beginning and the end. Here at the beginning of the Gospels, who are the first people to proclaim the good news of great joy of Christ's birth? It's these shepherds. And if we skip ahead to the end of the Gospel, who are the first people to proclaim the good news and great joy of Christ's resurrection? It's a group of women. Shepherds and women. Two people that at the time were regarded as unreliable people. Weren't able to give binding testimony in court. They would have been dismissed because there was no weight to their words. And who are the very people that God uses to bring the, great, or the good news of great joy to the weary world? Here it's shepherds. Later it's women. Because Christ came down lowly. He came to the lowly. He gave them great joy and he made them messengers of great joy also. And so maybe we find ourselves thinking, I could never do that. Too timid, too cautious to share our faith, thinking nobody would ever listen. Nobody would want to hear it. And to say that God could never use me. Well, look who he's used in the past. Look at the pattern of the people that he uses. We can think about that great verse in 1 Peter 3 and 15. Talks about always being ready to give a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Or we could put it today as a reason for the joy that is in you. What is the reason for the joy that is in you? What was the reason for the joy that was in these shepherds? Well, it was the joy of Jesus Christ, of having met with their Savior. And Christmas, well, it's a time for sharing, so maybe we could share that joy just as the shepherds did. 
And in fact, it's probably easier to do it at Christmas than any other time of the year because what's the small talk everyone's making? What the conversation do you have a hundred times over? Have you any plans for Christmas? Everyone asks you, have you any plans for Christmas? There's your plans for Christmas right there. So easy to maybe just hand that to someone. We have a carol service this evening. Who are you going to be talking to between now and then? Who could you invite along between now and 6.30 this evening? Any plans for Christmas Eve? We have a service at 11 and again at half six. We can invite people along. They'll ask you, have you any plans for Christmas Eve? You can say, yes, I'm going to church. Well, Christmas Eve is a Sunday. People always go to church on a Sunday. That's nothing special. But Christmas Day, there's a service again. Would you go to church on a Monday? Yes, I would. Why? Because I'm going to go and rejoice in the birth of my Savior and to remember and to give thanks for that and to go and meet with God's people and be filled with great joy. And so maybe Christmas time is that time when we can have those conversations, those t- that time when we can give an invite. And when people maybe are just more open and willing to answer that invitation and to come along. Because we do see at Christmas time, people are searching for that joy. They're longing for that joy. They're, they're seeking joy. It is a weary world. And people look for that joy. They look for that joy in Christmas. They're looking at Christmas. And yet they don't see Christ himself. We see all the other things, good things. We see friends and family. We see food and we have holidays and we get home. We have our wee traditions, the lights, the music, even just the gifts that are given. All good things, all perfectly nice things, all things that can give us happiness, cheerfulness even, but not real joy, not real deep and lasting joy. So as we say, happiness is circumstantial, isn't it? It peaks and it plummets. You have that at Christmas. Christmas is filled with that, and then it's over. January rolls around. You're back into the weary world. I have a sister who lives in England. She's coming home just after Christmas. It'll be lovely to see her for a couple of days, and then she'll be away in January again, and I'll not see her for another couple of months. It's great seeing family, but then the family have to go on again. There's the food. They eat turkey every day, three times a day. You eat turkey till everything tastes like turkey. <laughs> you eat chocolate till the point you become sick of chocolate. If such a thing could be imagined, you become sick of it. And you realize this food isn't all it's cracked up to be. You start longing for something different. All these good things of Christmas, and good things they surely are, they don't give us the joy that our souls long for and our hearts desire. We can look at Christmas and totally miss Christ. And if we do that, we miss the joy which God has offered to us. Augustine, as we said at the beginning, couldn't quite put time into words. Can we do that with joy? Can we put this joy into words? What exactly is it? Well, it's this. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ himself. He is the good news of great joy. And it is that relationship with him. It is running to meet with him as the shepherds did where that great joy is found, that peace with God, that forgiveness of sins, that living in his gracious favor, that simple receiving and resting in Jesus Christ. There's no greater joy than that, a joy that surpasses anything else this world could ever offer us. 
Happiness is circumstantial, that'll pass. Cheerfulness, well, your smile can very quickly fade. But a joy that endures even throughout the circumstances of life. A joy that shines bright even in the midst of the weary world. And that's what we see finally then with those shepherds in verse 20. If we have a look there, we see the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They go back out into the world, but it's no longer quite so weary. Everything had changed, and everything does when we meet with Jesus Christ, when we find the great joy in him. Because it is only in him, only in Christ, that the weary world rejoices. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you work every little detail of life and of the world to bring great joy. That this joy is not founded on fiction. It's not something we must manufacture for ourselves. It's not found in the circumstances of life. But it is deeper than happiness, richer than cheerfulness. It is Jesus, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And the good news of great joy is found in him. And in Jesus, our souls are satisfied. In him, our longings cease. So help us this day to rest in Christ and to be so filled with his joy that our hearts would overflow, that like the shepherds, we too would become messengers of great joy, glorifying and praising your name in the midst of this weary world. For this we do pray in that precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen.